This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Hospital Association. Our need for hospitals didn't end with the pandemic. Join the Texas Hospital Association supporting hospitals and Texas health. Find out more at THA.org. And Lone Star College is celebrating 50 years of providing high-quality, affordable education that helps lead students to academic and career success. Find out more at LoneStar.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 30th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. This week, we are going to talk about our Attorney General, Ken Paxton. I would say in terms of Texas officials, there's basically been no one else in the news as much as he has been this week. Um, you know, of course, his office has been in high profile legal fights over gun rights, abortion, freedom of speech, immigration, pretty much every issue that is on the minds of our state and federal leaders. Um, This week, the state's all Republican criminal court outraged him by confirming their prior ruling that his office can't prosecute cases of voter fraud without the consent of local DAs. And in what has been a pretty entertaining back and forth this week, he was also accused of fleeing his home in a Chevy truck driven by his wife, State Senator Angela Paxton, in order to avoid being served in a federal lawsuit involving nonprofit funds that help women obtain abortions. Um, Then, you know, as we were getting ready to record this podcast a a couple hours before before we gathered here to talk, there was a bombshell Associated Press story highlighting dysfunction in his office. Among the relevations in that story, news that high turnover in the AG's human trafficking unit helped contribute to a case being prosecuted by his office falling apart and allowing six people who had been accused of being involved in a scheme to force teenage girls to exchange, quote, I'm I'm quoting here, exchange sexual contact for crystal meth. Those six suspects are now free. A prosecutor said he quit after being told to withheld evidence in a murder case. And a senior staffer was fired after showing images of child pornography during a work presentation. Oh, and, you know, I should also mention he remains under criminal uh, felony indictment uh, for securities fraud. And he, you know, there has continues to be the whistleblower lawsuit that prompted an FBI investigation in which top members of his staff quit and accused him of bribery. Okay, I think that's it, at least for the setup. Uh, Joining us this week to talk about that are the author of that great Associated Press story, Jake Bleiberg. Hey, Jake, thank you for joining us. Hey, excited to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. All right, excellent. And Steve Vladek, a uh, professor who studies the federal courts at the University of Texas Law School, CNN contributor, frequent writer about the Attorney General's office, and author of the book, The Shadow Docket on the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. 
They, 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 they love me in the attorney general's office. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Well, I'm sure they love Jake too after yeah. this story as well. So they're, they're going to have right. like a hit, they're going to have like a hit listening party to this episode. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Jake, I mean, I don't really know how else to begin this podcast other than to just ask what is going on here in this office. I mean, this is a pretty stunning level of dysfunction that you chronicled here. In addition to all the other things that have been chronicled over the years and months in, in Ken Paxton's office. Yeah, I mean, I think you laid it out really well uh, to start. Um, you know, I sort of approached this story as wanting to understand as, as you know, this particularly powerful Republican official is seeking reelection and facing, you know, what might be a, a unique array of legal challenges, the FBI investigation, the long, uh, long delayed, uh, felony indictment on state charges. Uh, the state bar is seeking to discipline him. He's got all sorts of civil cases he's entangled in in various ways. As he's dealing with all of this, how, if at all, is that affecting the running of his office? And and you know, the way we the way you described it and the way we described it high up, I, I think, is basically. You know, it boils down to it's it's become a pretty dysfunctional place in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of lawyers and especially a lot of se like really seasoned lawyers with really specialized areas of legal experience, be it prosecuting human trafficking cases or overseeing complex financial litigation seeing those folks leaving the office and you know they've given different reasons for why they're leaving or or they've just left and they haven't explained why but you know by talking to I, I think more than two dozen people who either work there or used to work there basically what we found is it, it's a really difficult workplace their um, attorneys are being pushed to sort of take political views they're being pushed to do things with cases they're not comfortable with or in some cases they feel you know are a serious violation of their ethics and it's you know it's just not a place where at least a lot of attorneys who have been there want to continue working so we've seen we've seen these departures we've seen people leaving these high profile divisions like human trafficking and what we found is you know there there is a real effect here in terms of the day-to-day -day work of the office that might not have you know, the the profile of, say, General Paxton suing to challenge the presidential election, but is, you know, a major part of what it does for the state of Texas. And our, our sort of our lead off example of that were these. It was originally eight prosecutions in Gatesville, you know, sort of a small central Texas town where these eight people were charged on human trafficking, child and child sexual assault charges and just uh, just this month, uh, September 13th, the AG's office moved to dismiss those cases sort of to the utter outrage of the Republican district attorney who uh, handles cases in Coriel County. And, you know, what they said in dismissing them is um, there were a few where they said someone had recanted and there were four where they said um, we can't find the victim, uh, who is, I guess, also a witness in the cases. And, you know, I think that for the Republican DA there, that just really spoke to how functional this office was. He was, you know, I think I think what he told me is it's it's just sort of unbelievable that they can't find the victim in a you know pretty important series of cases that they brought to indictment just a year ago. 
How much do you think these problems, I mean, first of all, I, I just want to note to, you know, the fact that this is a human trafficking case is just especially shocking, you know, in, in one way, because of, you know, how terrible the details of this case are, which are, you know, you know, horrific, and, and it's something you would want to be prosecuted, but also because that this is such a focus of Paxton and, and other kind of top Republicans in this state, you know, human trafficking is something that um, the the Republican leadership has, you know, talked about and raised concern about for years and, and really, you know, tried to prioritize for it to have fallen apart and for that particular office to be in disarray um, is is especially shocking. Um, and, and part of the thing that you you cited here was was high turnover in that office. Right. I mean, what, the number was what, 40 to 40, 50 percent. Right. Yeah, so the current or the vacancies as of August were 40%. So 40% of jobs in that division that there's funding for were empty as of August. Um, we couldn't say for sure what the turnover rate or the loss rate had been in that division, just for some like complicated administrative reasons that affected the data. But we could we could look at other sort of similar divisions, the criminal prosecution division um over the last two years so from before paxton's eight top deputies reporting him to the fbi to present that division which handles all sorts of other criminal cases where the ag's office comes in to help local prosecutors that division's lost a quarter of its assistant you um assistant attorney general assistant attorneys general pardon me um and then, you know, the financial litigation and charitable trusts division, which is a complicated name, but basically handles complex financial and white collar cases, civil and criminal for the, for the AG's office. That actually lost more than half of its um, sort of line lawyers over that period of time. So, yeah, you're you're really seeing people leaving. And, you know, I understand that it. it it seems like there's been some reorganization within the department, but you know these are these are sort of jobs in divisions that the agency has described as a priority, particularly human trafficking. That you know it's pretty clear they're having people leaving, and it seems like they're struggling to fill as well. How much of this do you think is? due to the turnover that came with the whistleblowers who left that office. I mean, you know, the, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's been some time now, but we saw, you know, really the, the top aides to Ken Paxton leave. And then of course him having to hire replacements to those aides while he's, you know, in, in litigation against people who used to work for him. But additionally, you know, with job applicants knowing that his prior top aides have accused him of crimes. Is, do you get the sense that that's affecting the ability to hire talent, the talent that's needed to run that office? Yeah, I, th I think it's definitely, and you know, I can say this because I've spoken to people, it's definitely affecting uh, the desire of, of um, people who did work there to continue. You know, I, I think we described, this in these departures in the story is a bit of an aftershock from the the eight the eight people who went to the FBI and then all either left or were fired. Mm -hmm. I think that you know those allegations have had 
a real effect on you know the confidence staff have in in you know the administration of their office and then i also think that some of the people who have been brought in after that in sort of top roles under general paxton um have been very controversial within the office and you know maybe have sort of uh pushed uh politics that general paxton is very open about having but pushed them within the office to a degree that um you know made staff uncomfortable there you know the, this is we had a couple examples in the story but maybe the sort of flashiest one was the office held two different screenings for staff of um the Dinesh D'Souza movie, um, 2000 Mules, which is sort of this uh, basically false account of how the 2020 election was stolen. And that's, you know, that's, of course, uh, General Paxton went to court and and, and sued, uh, you know, to challenge the outcome of that case. But it's uh, for, for lawyers who were working in the office, uh, who were just trying to, you know, go about, I guess, you know, the criminal cases they were set to prosecute or the uh, litigation they were supposed to be doing for Texas agencies, they weren't necessarily comfortable with that. those politics being sort of pushed down on them, you know, in addition to out to the general public. Yeah. Uh, I, of course, left out the uh, the state bar, you know, uh, disciplinary action that he faces for attempting to, you know, overturn the results of the 2020 elections. That didn't even make my list there. Um you know, I, Steve, I, I'm curious your, your thoughts on this, because I've always kind of viewed the AG's office with interest, because Paxton has frequently had these kind of weird cases, sometimes beyond weird. I mean, felony indictment is goes beyond the case of weird, but even just the fleeing the process server this week, um, you know, there was that thing right when he took office about him, you know, taking the, the, thousand dollar pin from the tray at the Collin County Courthouse. And, you know, there's always these kind of stories of him getting in trouble or having issues and things like that. But I've at the same time viewed his office as very effective in some ways as well. And especially in, you know, fighting against the Biden agenda and pushing conservative causes in federal court. Um, I mean, am I wrong about that? Is Does the dysfunction not advance to the, the the kind of highest profile things that that Ken Paxton is doing here, I mean, I, I think the dysfunction does extend to the highest profile things. I think the question is whether it's contributing to it or actually, ironically, antithetical to it. I mean, is it possible, for example, that Ken Paxton would be even more effective if he was less idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. um, right? Because you know, the, one of the things it, it's worth stressing. I mean, there are a lot of people and there are a lot of institutions. That are enabling this behavior. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've talked before, you know, I wrote this brief about how the attorney general's office has been able to manipulate um, uh, sort of where you file lawsuits in Texas so that Paxton can not just pick friendly courts, but friendly judges, um, right? I mean, there's a reason why uh, of the lawsuits Texas keeps filing against the Biden administration. So many of them are being filed in Victoria and Amarillo and Lubbock and not Austin or Houston or Dallas or El Paso or San Antonio or even anywhere near the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that, Matthew, is because it's it's not just Paxton. It's the fact that like the court system is currently set up in ways that anyone in that position, I think, could really take advantage. Um, and I think so. So I, I think we should be careful not to say that, you know, this is some genius 
sort of strategy on Paxson's part. If anything, I think part of what has made the strategy so visible is how clumsy Texas has been um, about it. I mean, there's just a, there's one case, you know, where we, um, we, we we sort of tracked all of the cases Texas has filed against the Biden administration. And there's one case where Texas filed a new lawsuit in Amarillo, right, trying to draw Judge Kaczmarek. They had a 95% chance of drawing Judge Kaczmarek. And it was just, you know, a bad draw. They got the 5% bad beat. They drew Chief Judge Barbara Lynn. Um, and then only after they drew Judge Lynn, they say, oh, whoops, we forgot to note in our filing that this case is related to one already pending before Judge Kaczmarek. Therefore, we'd like you to send it back to him. And Judge Lynn was like, yeah, no. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the problem is that I, I think we're seeing the attorney general's office be weaponized for partisan political purposes, not in ways that we've never seen before, but I think to a degree and an extent we've never seen before, where everything that office does has some kind of partisan justification for it, right? Whether it's filing these lawsuits, um, whether it's withdrawing some of the lawsuits, right? Whether it is um, the two amicus briefs that the state of Texas filed last week in the 11th Circuit, the federal appeals court in Atlanta, <laughs> um, one of which was about the Mar-a-Lago search, except it really wasn't. It was just whining about how bad the Biden administration is. And one of which was about why Lindsey Graham shouldn't be compelled to have to answer questions about his interference in the 2020 election in Georgia, right? Two things that Texas has no interest in. So, you know, I, I think the problem is that, the, is that Paxton has basically sort of assume the mantle of, you know, Biden administration legal challenger in chief. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think it's a fair question that even his supporters should be asking. And this might also be related to some of the tension in the office. Is that really an effective use of the remarkable powers and resources that the attorney general's office has? I mean, is that is that really what we want the attorney general to be doing is going around and trying to cause trouble for the Biden administration, as opposed to doing what's in the best interest of the people of our state? You know, if I if I can um, jump in there, because I, I would have I would have loved to speak with General Paxton for the story we put out. I didn't get the opportunity to do that. If he or his staff are listening, I'd still love to speak with them. But, you know, I tried to talk with some some supporters of uh, of General Paxton to try to, you know, get a sense of how people feel about the way he's using this office. And, you know, obviously it's it's not representative of, of everyone. But one of the things I heard from some Republicans I talked to is the answer to your question is is yes. Like, they, they, you know, they are really excited to right. see a Texas attorney general sort of. Um, you know, duking it out with uh, the Democratic administration in the White House. And, you know, it, it, it seems that the, you know, sort of rush to court on contentious issues. And, and you, I mean, you, Steve, you're much better positioned to me than to speak to the legal merit of them. But it, it seems like politically they may be pretty effective for him. Yeah, I mean, no, Jake, I don't, I don't doubt that that's right, and I don't doubt that that's why he's doing it. I, I guess what I'm saying is, I, you know, would that it weren't so, um, right? That 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 we ought to be in a time when we actually think that the Attorney General of Texas's principal obligation is to the people of Texas, um, and not to the Republican Party nationally, um, right? I mean, I guess the, another way of putting this is, I would ask the same people, you know, whether they would complain if the Attorney General of California were to do this to a Republican president. 
uh, right? Or if the Attorney General of Vermont were to do this to a Republican president? And I'm sure the answer, Jake, is yes, uh, right? Because we have this, you know, in our federalist system, we have this sense that it shouldn't be up to states to be the principal arbiters and the principal challengers of federal policy. So, you know, I guess I just I, I, I understand that it scores political points. And I understand that that's why they're doing it. I think it is unfortunate both that it does score those points and that there are enough people who think that 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 justifies um, all of the downsides. It justifies right the the things that aren't being done by the attorney general of Texas. It justifies the sense that that office is basically simply an arm for wielding partisan political power and not for dispensing justice. Um, right. I mean, I, I don't know how you can look at that office right now with the perception that it actually treats Republicans and Democrats equally. Yeah, no, it, it's I, I, I totally take your point and to it. Um, the, the district attorney I spoke to in, in the county where these cases were dismissed, I, I think, made sort of exactly that point. And, you know, he is a Republican in a very conservative part of the state. And, you know, he seemed to feel pretty strongly that he'd rather have. You know, if if it is a choice, he'd rather have this office focused on, you know, effectively handling the cases that are, you know, are before courts here in Texas. Well, the irony is, I mean, I mean, you know, Matt mentioned at the top, I mean, one of the other things that has been in the news this week was that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, right, denied Paxton's rehearing request um, in the case where Paxton's trying to take over the ability to try election fraud from local district attorneys. And you know, that, I mean, Jake, this to me dovetails with that very point, which is, you know, the attorney general is spending all of his time on things other than the cases he already has the power to prosecute, right? He's spending time in the 11th Circuit in Atlanta. He's spending time in the Supreme Court trying to challenge the 2020 election, right? He's spending time, you know, filing all these cases against the Biden administration. Jake, where on the merits, he actually isn't doing that well, right? I mean, he's He's getting these preliminary injunctions from district courts, but actually when these get to the Supreme Court, he's usually losing. Um, there's a big case the Supreme Court's going to hear this fall, unhelpfully called the U.S. versus Texas. Um, we have a lot of those floating around, um, which I think is going to be another big loss for Paxton. But I guess the to me, the moral of the story is like as Paxton, you know, time is finite, resources are finite, right? The, as Paxton is doing all of this rankly partisan stuff, Right. Which things are getting left by the wayside. And that, Jake, is where I think your story is so important. Yeah, we had this kind of surreal moment uh, last week where while the governor of Florida was spending state money to fly migrants from Texas to Massachusetts, the attorney general of Texas was using Texas resources to intervene in a, you know, uh, law enforcement action that happened in Florida. You know, this kind of interest across state lines going both directions but 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 matt i guess this this and this to me is i mean you know i i i don't imagine i i i mean jake i think is exactly right that there are a lot of folks who support what paxton's doing because they agree with the political valence of it right and i guess this to me is the problem which is how can we have a functioning federal system where everyone wants their side right to resort to whatever guerrilla tactics they can to frustrate the government and the governance um, done by the other, right? I mean, it seems to me that like the, you know, it's one thing to say, I have problems with the current administration. It's another thing to say, therefore, I sanction a system in which it will be open season on every federal policy and every federal action going forward for all time, um, even when I like 
who's in the White House. Like that, that to me is the the sort of the, the very myopic part of what's happening right now. Yeah. And of course, you know, this is a playbook that was set up by Governor Abbott that, that he was proud of. You know, everyone has heard the quote a hundred times the, that Abbott used to say, I wake up, I sue the, I go to work, I sue the Obama administration, I go home, or I, I, I probably ruined mess up that quote but no, you know, no but that's general I mean, but, idea but but that but i think it's worth stressing guys that this is a new development right that that abbott i mean yes it's, it's it was abbott's line but it was not common before hmm. like you know if you look back at the george w bush administration if you look back at the bill clinton administration two very different right two-term presidencies hmm. you did not see this kind of behavior by either red state attorneys general during the clinton years or blue state attorneys general during the bush years and i think you know, in that respect, this is a symptom of a much larger disease um, in our politics and in our legal discourse, which is now, you know, lawsuits are just the continuation of political fights um, and courts are just another place to resolve political disputes. Mm-hmm. And I think that cheapens the, what the courts are doing. I think that devalues the um, other responsibilities that both the Texas Constitution and the legislature have invested in the attorney general. Um, and I think it's also completely unsustainable in the long term because, guys, there are 49 other states. Um, and I know we like to think that there aren't. Um, but, you know, none of these arguments about why Ken Paxson gets to do all of these things have anything to do with Texas being unique. Um, right. And so if we're going to bless it in Texas, we have to bless it everywhere. Sure. sure. All right. Let's pause for a moment and hear from our sponsors. Raise your hand. Texas believes the future of Texas, our communities, economy, and citizenry depends on how well we prepare all students. Meet your regional advocacy director, sign up for our newsletter, and get involved at raiseyourhandtexas.org backslash advocacy. And BNSF Railway is one of the top transporters of the products and materials that help feed, clothe, supply, and power communities throughout America and the world. Find out more at bnsf.com. Okay, so Steve, you mentioned uh, before the break that that this strategy of kind of picking judges or, or, or trying to kind of manipulate things to pick judges um, is, is part of the Ken Paxton strategy here. And, and this was a fascinating uh, bit of reading um, that, that, that I, I took a look at. And, and you have the chart at the bottom, and I believe you can correct me on the stats here, but I believe of the nine, of the 20 cases that you cited in which, you know, Paxson was suing the um, Biden administration. There were a few kind of exceptions that you left out of the analysis, but uh, 19 of those managed to get before judges who were appointed by Republican presidents. Give us a little bit more of an explanation of how he's able to do this. Yeah, I mean, so the, the federal courts in Texas are divided into four districts. Um, so in Austin here, we're in the Western District, which runs all the way from here to El Paso. Uh, there's also the Northern District, which is like Dallas and the Metroplex. Um, the Eastern District, which is basically sort of Beaumont and the, the Northeast parts of Texas. And the Southern District, which is basically Houston down to the border. Um, and the sort of the basic gist of this is um, normally when you file a lawsuit in federal court, you file in a district court. A district court has a whole bunch of judges. And the lawsuit is randomly assigned to one of the judges in that district. Um, Texas, partly because we're so big, um, has this thing, has a tradition of dividing the districts into divisions where you actually have subdivided districts. And in many of these divisions, there's only one judge. So if I file a lawsuit in Waco, for example, I have a hundred percent chance 
of having that lawsuit assigned to Judge Alan Albright. If I file a lawsuit in Victoria, I have a 100% chance of having that lawsuit assigned to Judge Drew Tipton, right? So, so much for random assignment of judges. And, you know, Paxton and his staff, they're no dummies, right? They know this as well as anyone. They are the most frequent civil litigants in the state of Texas. Um, and so they take advantage of this to file lawsuits against the federal government, the federal government, which can be sued anywhere, um, unlike private parties. And instead of suing in Austin, which is where the attorney general's office is, um, instead of suing like down by the border in any of these immigration cases, right? All these lawsuits are being brought in divisions where they have very high odds of either drawing a Republican appointed judge in general or a particular judge specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the sort of, you know, nine, in, the, the only reason why they ended up not getting all 20 is because of that one case where they hit the 5% um, draw in, in, in Amarillo. Um, but, you know, the basic just is this is actually something, it's not illegal, right? But it's actually, it looks really shady. And when folks come back and say, well, everyone does it, it's actually not true. Like most states do not subdivide their federal district courts the way that Texas does. So just to take one sort of obvious blue state example, when California sued the Trump administration, California would bring that lawsuit in San Francisco, um, in the Northern District of California, where there are 18 judges um, and where California had no way of manipulating which of those 18 judges the case would be assigned to. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it just seems to me that like as between having a random assignment among 18 judges versus filing lawsuits before one specific judge where you know who it's going to be in advance and you're choosing him anyway, um, the latter really does look manipulative. And I think it also helps to explain why in so many of these cases, Paxton's winning in the district court and then maybe getting sort of the Fifth Circuit to leave the district court alone and having the Supreme Court maybe put the, the block on it. So the, the pattern here is Paxton sort of taking advantage of this quirk in Texas procedure in a way that perhaps no other state attorney general can. How much does this kind of set up a clear pathway to the Supreme Court when you want to get there? I mean, because it is is not lost on me that, you know, the, the recourse when you disagree with a district court judge is to go to the Fifth Circuit in Texas, which is, of course, a very political, I mean, a very Republican. <laughs> I'm a, All those things a are true. conservative uh, court uh, is, is, is the word I was looking for there. And um, and then, of course, you know, now we have a very conservative Supreme Court. I mean, is this just kind of padding the pathway to get what Paxton wants when he's able to do this? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, so so the Fifth Circuit has been pretty um, compliant in not staying, not sort of freezing uh, the injunctions that Paxton has been able to obtain from the very carefully picked district judges. But, you know, interestingly, as conservative as this Supreme Court is, it hasn't um, just given Paxton everything he wanted. So, you know, there was a very high visibility case last term about the Remain in Mexico migrant protection protocols that Paxton lost five to four in the Supreme Court. Um, the, the case that the court's going to hear this fall about the immigration enforcement priorities, I think there's a good bet he's going to lose that case in the Supreme Court. So I think the problem is that Paxton gets these short-term wins because he gets the injunction from a district court he handpicked. He gets the headline. He gets to send out the press release saying, look, I won another one, mm-hmm. right? He gets the Fifth Circuit leaving that injunction in place. And then months or years later, when the Supreme Court finally rules against him, he's moved on, the public has moved on, and there's nowhere near the same kind of counter media campaign about how look at all this money and time and energy 
Paxson wasted on what was ultimately a losing effort. Um, so, you know, I think there's little incentive from his perspective not to keep doing this, not to keep engaging in this very behavior and practice until and unless someone, you know, who's in a position to stop him says this is a problem. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, what you know, you reviewed all these cases. Which ones have your the most atten- most of your attention? Which ones do you feel like are the the key cases for the state and the country moving forward as they as they advance? Yeah, I mean, of, of the ones that are pending, I think the biggest one is actually the one in which we filed this amicus brief, this friend of the court brief, mm-hmm. um, U.S. versus Texas. This is a case where uh, Texas, through Attorney General Paxton is challenging the Department of Homeland Security's immigration enforcement priorities. Um, There are over 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country. Uh, The federal government doesn't have the capacity to remove all of them at once. And so the question is, how does the federal government decide who to prioritize for arresting, detaining, removing from the country? Um, the, The Biden administration put out a memo called the Mayorkas memo. It was challenged by Texas in uh, Victoria, uh, before Judge Tipton. Judge Tipton issued a nationwide injunction against it. The Fifth Circuit refused to stay it, but now the case is in the Supreme Court. Um, and part of why I think this case is really important is not just the specific legal question about the Biden administration's enforcement priorities. The Biden administration's arguing in the Supreme Court that Texas should not have been allowed to bring this lawsuit in the first place. Um, and basically that Texas is not harmed in any way differently from any other state, that Texas has not suffered a unique injury by dint of the Biden administration priorities that Ken Paxton is challenging. Um, That sounds technical, but it's actually a really big deal because if the Supreme Court agrees with that, that actually will take some of the sales, some of the wind out of the sails of what Paxton's doing in these lawsuits, right? Of the, you know, 29 lawsuits that Texas has filed against the Biden administration, Somewhere north of 20 of them have turned on the, the, the sort of the, the injury that's being relied on here, the notion that Texas suffers incidental economic harm from the mere presence of undocumented immigrants in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, all states do. <laughs> um, right. And so if the Supreme Court were to actually say, you know, wholly apart from the merits of the Biden administration's priorities, Texas shouldn't have been able to bring the suit in the first place. That actually could really, really scale back um, the ability of Texas and, frankly, other states, right, to bring suits like this going forward. You know, we just saw yesterday um, Nebraska and six and five other red states are challenging the Biden administration's student loan debt forgiveness program mm-hmm. in Missouri. Like this is this is the new thing: is states challenging policies they don't like? The case the court's going to hear this fall. U.S. versus Texas is really a referendum on that as much as it is about that specific question. It's why I think it's such a big deal and we should be watching it pretty carefully. Interesting. Yeah, I was actually interested to see that Texas was not a part of that lawsuit challenging the student loans. So, you know, I guess we'll see whether there's an, a separate one coming. It's it's, it's an inter- anytime Texas is not part of one of those, it's an interesting question to wonder why. Yeah, exactly. Jake, you have reported on some of the the kind of legal problems that that Ken Paxton has, has and I, I believe you reported you were the one who reported that the FBI was in, investigating this. A lot of time has passed since those whistleblowers raised their um, uh, concerns and and left the office. Is is there? Do we have any sense as to what's going on there? Whether that case that investigation is still ongoing or or, or where he stands legally? 
Yeah, so I, I can say with confidence, um, and, and we reported in the story today, that federal um, investigation, and I think, you know, as it's before the prosecutor's office, they call it a matter that that is that remains open. That is something that is still being considered within the Department of Justice. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I would love to be able to tell you in more detail exactly where it stands. I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's I think still possible we will see an indictment. It is still possible we won't. Um, and, and we just uh, don't have any clear indication at this point. I guess I would just say contextually, it's important to know that federal investigations and especially federal investigations of um, complex matters are generally very slow. Um, I, th I think it's not unusual for an FBI probe to run, you know, two, three, four, five years. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's it's difficult to say, you know, unless you're in, in, in within the bowels of the Department of Justice, it's difficult to say whether that stands. And 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 I should say, of course, here that General Paxton, um, you know, denies he did anything wrong here, and and actually, I think put out a report, um, at some length in in which he he and his staff uh lay out their case that they did nothing wrong. Sure, sure, absolutely. And you have mentioned, you know, going back to the the, the topic of, of of people leaving and the, the rehiring. I mean, one thing that you pointed out in your story was, you know, some of the uh, people brought into senior roles had, you know, financial relationships. You know, don't you know had had been you know either connections to donors or were donors themselves being brought in. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this is, um, you know. We report in this story on, I guess, a couple instances of something that we've seen as a broader pattern where people who have been donors to General Paxton or donors to his um, uh, legal, legal defense fund, which he established after being indicted for securities fraud in 2015, have benefited from the agency in some way. And in some instances that has been by actions the agency has taken externally um back uh early in um the covid-19 pandemic general paxton sort of got involved in the um the health policy of a little county in colorado um in sort of ways that were perplexing to people given you know its distance from from austin but uh you know what what we we did some reporting there and what we found is there was there was a a friend and donor of his who was um trying to stay in his mountain home at a time when this little county was asking him to leave because of covid concerns um what we reported on here is i i think sort of another example of this type of behavior where uh, a man named Tom Gleason, who whose family had given fifty thousand dollars to General Paxton's legal defense fund back in, uh, I, I believe it was twenty fifteen. Although I would have to double check the date, but had previously given him some money. This man got a job with the attorney general's office, and and what that position was was after all of the uh, the top staff uh, reported Paxton to the FBI and left. This guy got brought in to review the workings of one of their departments. So he got brought in to review the workings of the criminal investigations department. Um, and it, it's worth saying here, 
um, this you know supporter of Paxton's had spent a little bit of time, uh, I think you know four or five years as a police officer in Oregon, starting in the late 1970s and 1980s. But he'd spent most of his career doing things that have nothing to do with law enforcement. Uh, he, he he was the uh, owner of a an ice cream company for a lot of his career. But he, he nonetheless got brought into this role, sort of reviewing the functions of the department ran by one of the people who had accused Paxton of crimes. And he was in this job for, I think, just under eight weeks before he was fired. And the attorney general's office didn't, you know, sort of announce this. And there's nothing unusual about that. But they also made it quite difficult to figure out what what he was fired for, um, you know. It's not there isn't a reason given in any of the documentation we've seen around this. And and this was something I heard about at the time. And now, you know, a year and a half later, I finally found some people who have direct knowledge of what happened. And what what they told us happened is that uh, this man displayed in a meeting where he was uh, sort of discussing the difficult work criminal investigators do in this agency he displayed a, a video you know that they characterized as child pornography of a, an adult raping a small child and you know it's important to say here our understanding of this is that it was shown in you know trying to make this point that this is a very hard job these people have to do dealing with this sort of material um but it's uh, you know it, it's something that and, and something that the attorney general's office or the other staff there were clear, were very upset by. It led to his firing. But uh, one of the people I spoke to about this also said that um, there was some pressure internally not to talk about it. So you know, it was sort of a a controversial episode and an example of some of the people who are close to Paxton who have sort of. I guess, seen benefit from or taken unusual roles in the office. And, and quickly tell us about the departure of the, the prosecutor, Bill Turner, as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Bill Turner is um, a fairly prominent uh, member of the Texas legal community. He was a longtime district attorney, I think, for more than two decades. And after retiring, you know, as an elected Democratic district attorney, he went and he worked for the uh, Republican attorney general's office in a way that I think, um, you know, at one point was very common that, that you know, this is sort of a, a legal office that is doing serious legal work, in his case, criminal prosecutions, and doesn't really feel, um, you know, a, a partisan valence. But, uh, and, and, but after about five years there, um, this January, Turner left, and, and he says he left because he was pressured by his supervisors not to turn over evidence to the defense attorneys in a murder prosecution. And and he wouldn't go into a lot of detail about that because um, basically he says there's another um, related matter that talking about it in depth could um, you know, could affect, but he he was you know really concerned about this. Uh, felt it was you know a, a serious you know breach of his prosecutorial ethics. And and maybe Steve, I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that. This is your area of expertise, but I, I think that you know that's something that to him as a prosecutor was really alarming. 
I want to ask one last question that's a little bit off topic, but since Steve, you're on here, I, I want, I don't want to let it go by because I, I continue to be fascinated by this social media case that's coming out of Texas and Ken Paxton is, um, involved in that case, although he did not bring this action. This is a case where the, the Texas is actually being sued, but it's related to a social media law uh, passed by the legislature in the most recent legislative session that um, in the kind of wording of the authors prevents social media companies from censoring the uh, content of um, people who post on their site based on their political views. This has prompted a, you know, First Amendment fight about whether companies have a First Amendment right to prevent speech from being posted on their platform of a, you know, privately held company. And most recently, we saw action from the Fifth Circuit, which which um, kind of upheld the law or, or allowed the law to go into effect. Um, drawing a lot of frustration from 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 opponents of the law, including kind of the the, the um, big tech industry that was that was opposing it. Um, Steve, tell us a little bit about this ruling and and the implications of it um, from the Fifth Circuit um, and and where we might go from here. I assume this is likely to be put before the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's about as likely as you ever see um, with a lower court decision. So, um, yeah, I mean, Texas's social media content moderation law, you know, it's all about this this claim of censorship, although what it really does, right, is it basically tells private media companies what they can't do with offensive content on their sites. Um, basically, it would say, you know, hey, Twitter, Facebook, you can't actually suspend these accounts, you can't take down these offensive images. Um so the, the critical sort of added piece of this is there's a very similar law in Florida. We keep talking about this sort of the parallels between Florida and Texas. Um, Florida passed a very similar law that was actually blocked by the federal appeals court in Atlanta back to the 11th Circuit. Um, so the Texas law was also blocked by a district judge here in Austin. The Fifth Circuit earlier this summer, without any explanation, issued a stay of that injunction that would have put the Texas law HB 20 into effect. Then the tech groups went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court by a five to four vote put the injunction back into place, vacated the Fifth Circuit stay, basically a pretty good sign that there are five justices who are going to strike down the Texas law if, if and when they need to. Um, the panel in this case, undeterred by a two to one vote, went ahead and said, we still think that the law is constitutional. We still think the injunction should be reversed. Um, and so this case is definitely going back to the Supreme Court. There's a head-on circuit split, right? The 11th Circuit struck down Florida's law. The Fifth Circuit upheld Texas's law. Um, the Supreme Court has already weighed in on Texas's law. And, and frankly, I think it's likely that Texas is going to lose this case um, in the Supreme Court, that, you know, the court is going to side with the 11th Circuit's view, which is that um, these private companies, even though they're very important, are not government actors, right? They're not required to provide you know, to protect our First Amendment rights. We don't have First Amendment rights against Twitter and Facebook any more than we do against HEB, um, right? And I think that that's where this is going, but it's another example of Texas pushing the envelope because, you know, even though I suspect the Supreme Court's going to ultimately strike down Texas's law, I also suspect there will be several, if not four dissents um, mm -hmm. that, you know, endorse a pretty radical view of the ability of states to regulate private businesses when it comes to speech that the states don't want the private businesses to be able to disfavor. 
And frankly, I mean, from my perspective, that sort of flips the First Amendment on its head. Um, it, you know, the sort of telling that being OK with the state telling a private company what speech it must tolerate and facilitate seems deeply antithetical to how we think about the relationship between government and private industry. Um, but I think it's yet another example of how Texas is the leading edge of the wave of a whole bunch of new legal theories um, that may not be accepted, but that would be pretty remarkable if they were. Yeah, and that just goes to show it's another example of how important this office is and the impact, not just on the lives of Texans, but on Americans as a whole. But that's about all the time we have this week to talk about it. Thank you, Steve and Jake, for joining us. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Hospital Association, the Lone Star College, Raise Your Hand Texas, and BNSF Railway. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?